Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. My guest today is Travian Shorters, a visionary who has seen and named a task that is necessary for all healing and building, for every vision and plan, whether in a family or a world, to flourish. Yet it's a kind of move often short-circuited in our urgency for action and solutions. It's called asset framing, and it works with both cutting-edge understandings of the brain and an age-old understanding of the real-world power of the words we use, the stories we tell, the way we name things and people. To understand asset framing, you first have to take in its profoundly intuitive opposite, which is the way we've largely been living, deficit framing. From everyday social media to hallowed modes of journalistic, academic, and policy analyses, we have a habit of seeing problems and of defining people in need in terms of their problems. Travian Shorters is working with all kinds of institutions, from philanthropy to nonprofits to journalism, who are waking up to the fact that the very way we have spoken of and therefore thought about the people and crises we wish to serve has often instead stigmatized and sabotaged them. It has not only doomed some of our best efforts to failure, it leaves all of us prone to cynicism and hopelessness. What's exciting is that what Travian Shorters proposes is not only more effective, it is simple and straightforward to grasp. It is in and of itself dignifying and renewing. The main question you might be asking at the end of this is why, at this advanced stage of our species, it took us so long to learn to asset frame. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Trabian Shorters is founder and CEO of Be Me, a movement to first define black people by their aspirations and contributions. He's been a vice president of communities at the Knight Foundation, co-led the Ashoka U.S. venture team, and founded a successful early social impact tech company in 1999. He grew up in Pontiac, Michigan, which was dying as a factory town and rapidly destabilizing across his childhood. In an example of asset framing in action in his own education, he was found to have a genius IQ and eventually attended a private boarding school several miles and worlds away from his home. You know, I'm always curious about the roots in a life yeah. of what become that life's passions and callings and, and, and kind of animating questions. Mm. And also about however, you know, you would define the religious or spiritual background of your earliest life, of your childhood. So how do you think about, where does your mind go if you think about these roots of what you care about now? Oh, yeah. It all starts with my grandparents. Mm. So I was born and raised in Pontiac, Michigan. Uh, my mom was still a teen when I was born. And so I was raised, you know, for the early formative years of my life in my grandparents' household, right? And my my uh, grandmother and my grandfather are both from the South. And mm-hmm. so 
They are literally this sort of um, almost stereotypical deep Southern Negro Christians, right? They, mm-hmm. My grandfather was raised, and my grandmother actually, but I, I learned it more from my grandfather. They were both raised in the love doctrine, you know, and the idea that in order to practice Christianity, you must love people the way that God loves people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I got that early and often because uh, as far as I could tell, grandma and grandpa knew God personally. Right. Uh, and, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so, and so, uh, and so, uh, so yeah, it, it really did infuse the household um, when I was growing up. Mm. So they started this, the Kingdom of God Outreach Ministries. Is that right? Yep. Or your grandfather yep. started that? I just yep. looked at the website. I mean, I know that there there are other leaders now, but it, it you just feel, even just from being on the website, that that's a really special place. You know, let, let me elaborate on that a little bit if it's yeah. okay. Um, so my grandfather, uh, you know, was just a very straightforward, down-to-earth kind of person. And so when he retired from General Motors, and a very loving person, you know, yeah. So when he retired from General Motors, he wanted to create a community center for kids, you know, after school, safe place to play and all that. Uh, And it was his bishop who told him to, you know, stop messing around, go ahead and start your ministry, right? And so grandpa started the church, but he also bought the lot next door and created the community center. So the church and the community center were started at the exact same time, because what he really wanted to do was be of service to the community. And he always, his orientation to like, I guess to spirituality, but that's not how they talked about it. His orientation to life was always about, you know, giving people what they need and literally loving them, like loving them in, in, in action. Hmm. You could also say they were asset framing in the way you see things now, well, right? Like, I mean, well, honestly, yeah, focus, honestly, their yeah. Their North Star was love. Well, actually, you know, if, if we want to connect those dots, here, mm-hmm. here's the fact of the matter. Um, asset framing is a direct expression of the love doctrine. Right. Mm-hmm. It is defining mm-hmm. people by their aspirations and contributions before you get to their challenges. So whatever is going on in someone's life, you don't ignore it, but you don't define them by the worst moment or the worst experience or the worst potential. Like None of that. You have to look past their faults <laughs> to see who they really are. And even the word, you know, aspiration, we're very intentional about that because it has the word spirit baked into it. So we, what we want to do. Uh. Yes. So what we want to do is acknowledge the true person, the true spirit living in someone, you know, the thing that motivates them, what gets them moving. It, it is not that they are poor. They don't wake up in the morning inspired by that. Like their spirit isn't moved by that. Their spirit isn't moved by being marginalized or all that kind of thing. There's something that they aspire, you know, to have, to to create, to give to someone else. And if you start your relationship with a person by acknowledging, you know, what spirit is actually living in front of you, then you're going to have a different relationship. So since you mentioned asset framing, Yes and yes. Uh, what I, what I wanted to maybe yeah to tie right. it back to your the original mm-hmm. um, comment. The schools didn't discover that I you know had a high IQ. My mother uh, knew it way sooner, and she advocated for me to get into these different programs uh, my entire early school life. And it was very hard. Like folk, folks were not willing to test me. They weren't willing to um, you know to consider me in those ways. I don't know if it was the school system or racially motivated or whatever, but but she had to work at it. She had to push at it. The first scholarship I got was to a place called Roper. And that was a consequence of my mom, you know, pushing. And their criteria for even considering me was that I take an IQ test. Uh, so once I get the IQ test and I go to Roper and, you know, all of a sudden I'm a smart kid now. And so all my toys change. I can't, you know, I, I don't get to, <laughs> it's not GI Joe with the Kung Fu grip anymore. Now I got to get science kits and electronic, which I liked honestly, but I, yeah. I also wanted to, you know, 
do normal stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I definitely get nerd toys and I, and you know, not long after that, you know, the, the PC comes out. And so I get a chance to start, you know, building computers, which I really liked or, and also programming them. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the nerd track in, in full bloom. <laughs> and then when I was 14, I get accepted to Horizon Upward Bound again because of my mother's efforts, not because of mm-hmm. uh, any kind of passivity. And then I get a scholarship to Cranbrook, which is a fantastic private boarding school, you know, hidden behind cobblestone walls in Bloomfield Hills. Right. And um, it's it's very much like being transported off planet because I had lived up to that point, you know, around poor folk and and, and with what what I call regular folk. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've yep. been around regular folk. And Cranbrook is not a regular folk community (laughs) at all, at all. Very different. You know, one thing that um, that I really appreciate in your, you know, not not just in your work, but in how you bring these ideas into different communities, um, what you are presenting is on some level a critique of the way things have been done. Um, Absolutely. You're you you're not judgmental, you, right? And right. I and I wonder. I mean, you're not you're not doing the deficit thing also with right. rich people or right. <laughs> nonprofit right. leaders or journalists. So, right. and I'm curious when I think about this time in your life, and I mean, it's just so fascinating because you were, as you said, you were on another planet, but you weren't that far from home. And so, yeah. I just wonder if some of this was planted in you in that experience oh, yeah. too. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Look, um, I well, just you know, picture this: <laughs> little black boy tech nerd genius raised in the hood, right? That's Trabian. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. so the idea that these things don't have to contradict each other—that's my life. Like mm-hmm. you know, I, uh, um, Michigan is itself a pretty peculiar state, right? So when you grow up around folks who share kind of this working class identity, even though they come from different ethnicities and races. Um, And then you toss in race and you see the polarity that comes from that. If you pay attention, like Trabian had to, then you develop nuance. You know, there's, there's no reason to vilify my neighbors and my friends and, and they see it differently. They feel differently about it, but we end up in the same schools. We end up in the same situation, honestly, and at the end of the day, I really do feel like people who decide to tap into the fear and use the fear as a way of gaining power and of and of keeping attention, those people are the enemy. Like if, if you're gonna if you're gonna figure out who you need to be against, you need to be against folk who are telling you that you have to be opposed to someone you've never even met, right? Yeah. Those are the folk that, that we should look sideways at. And that's an interesting way to start talking about your way of seeing and I would say teaching and forming and creating a, a different kind of um, cultural conversation mm-hmm. and model. And, you know, you have such interesting influences that brought you to this work that also are very defining of, you know, our cultural influences and kind of inflection points, um, mm. including, as you mentioned briefly, you um 
you're a tech kid. I don't know. Let's yeah. let's give you credit. This is before yeah. nerds were cool, right? Nerds are cool now. And <laughs> true they that. True they that. were not back then. <laughs> That's um, right. And so you were into coding and yep. and hacking. And I I love yep. something that you said. Uh, you said a really good technologist understands that in order to hack something well, you have to understand a system well enough to get it to do something it wasn't designed to do, and that that right. is is a skill set you bring to cultural That's right. change. That's right. Yeah. That appreciation is how I've tackled like everything, you know, since, you know, the tech company that we formed was a, a type of technical hack on, a, on an innovation limit that we had encountered. Uh, I developed this thing called culture typing, which is understanding which types of change a culture can handle at any given moment. Mm-hmm. And, and, and by, this, mm-hmm. by culture, I mean like a, in, in a single organization, mm-hmm. right? A business or um, the society itself, right? For me, the combination of understanding systems well and then being able to parsec, right? Can you, can you critical path uh, mm. the connections here mm. so that, for instance, asset framing is a cultural hack. It's understanding how culture works yeah. well enough to use culture to change culture, right. right? And so I was taught that culture is the transferable set of beliefs and behaviors that enables a group to survive. It is true of social culture. It is true of music culture. It's true of bacterial culture. Like, mm. this is mm. what culture is, right? And so in understanding that, it became very clear that if I'm a Black person, I'm taught to believe that I must deficit frame my people. I must dramatize the disparity, right? So that's the belief. Right. And then the behavior is to then stigmatize my people so that I can attract resources, Right. If I if I can define them by their worst threat, you know, greatest inequity, whatever, then I can attract resources. Well, this culture of denigration for dollars means that yes, you attract the resources, but you do so by writing your population into the public consciousness as inferior, as ineffective, as pathological. You know, all all these things are the only ways that people know to know us. Right. Because the way that we have been taught to survive is by dramatizing our injustices, which I think it's important to point out. The injustices are real. So we're not saying ignore any of them. Right. We're saying that is not what defines us. That's not what defines anyone. Right. Uh, And and you ended up um, walking into philanthropy and again, you know, grappling with framing and, Ways in which people and organizations that want to help, want to be of, want to be of service, um, actually end up making some of those, you know, colluding and and actually, you know, catalyzing those moves you just described. The terms that are used about disparities, disadvantaged, impoverished, right. at right. risk, right. Um, and what that does in the mind of the person who's trying to be of service and of the person who could, is on well, the you, other you, end of those descriptives. You mentioned that, that uh, the way we talk about, you know, way we talk about framing doesn't feel judgmental. Let, let, me, yeah, yeah. let me illuminate at least why yeah. for me. Um, number one, everyone who's in the social impact space wants to make the world a better place. Yeah. Well, that's their aspiration. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I'm applying asset framing, right, if we're defining ourselves by our aspirations to make the world a better place, 
then all these other things, you know, these negative consequences, that's not intentional. No. That, that's accidental. So I'm not going to beat you up for an accident. I want to show you uh, what is blocking your worthy aspiration, right? You want to magnify human life. You want people to live more fully. You want folks to have greater opportunity. You want justice. You want freedom. You want all these things. So I just want to show you how the instrument that you've been taught to use has a big hole in the bottom of the bucket, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and if we can recognize that unintentionally we end up stigmatizing and the consequences of that, then we can change the behavior. You know, what I, what I want to do with asset framing is I literally want to help people who have committed their lives to making it better for all of us to have a fuller tool set yeah. and to recognize that you fall into a cognitive trap, not by your design, but once you see the hole, it's very easy to try not to step into it, you know, to, to avoid those behaviors. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with social visionary, the creator of Asset Framing, Trabian Shorters. One thing I notice also is you don't use some of the language that's very commonly used around unconscious bias. And I'm just curious why. I feel I feel like there's probably a reason for that. And yes, there let's is. look at the brain. Let's look at the at the brain yes. science actually that you're yeah. relying on. Yeah, there there so the the main reason is uh I made it to college once upon a time, right? And I you know, I go home in the summer, I hang out with my boys and we talk about all the same stuff that, you know, I learned in these different classes, right? Except regular folks use regular words. Right. <laughs> and yeah. And people who get degrees use a language that nobody knows what the hell you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so asset framing, as I, you know, I, I did invent that term for the college class. Um, but all these things around implicit bias and stereotype threat and, um, you know, all, all, all that jargon. Mm-hmm. We totally understand it. Mm-hmm. But if you can put it into normal language, mm-hmm. then people actually understand what you're talking about as opposed to you know, impressing upon them that you've studied things that they don't know. And even um, this idea of equity itself, which is, you know, many of the folks who employ us ask us to help them work on issues of equity and engagement and, you know, community building and the like. And so I always like to point out to foundation leaders and, and corporate leaders in particular that every other time you use the word equity, right, financial equity, right, every other time you use the word equity, you, you are literally talking about what has value. Right. And I'm just saying, be consistent. This is also all of our conversations about equity. They're all about what or who has value. And if you're going to start a conversation about equity around people, mm-hmm. then you have to value the people Not at the center of the question. about who, who is a problem and who no. is disadvantaged, right? That's, That's right. the way it gets framed. Right. All, yeah. right. all, that, all that disadvantage, broken down, mm-hmm. at risk, marginalized. Mm-hmm. All those are, that's language you use when you're trying to cost control or risk control, mm-hmm. right? That's risk control language. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, you know, I like to point out to folks, particularly the folks in the finance industries, um, there's a difference between, you know, risk management and equity investing. Right, right, right. <laughs> you, right. You know, the, yeah. So you, you got, if you're talking about being equitable, yeah. then you have to define people by their assets. You got to say, what is it we're investing in? Right. We're not investing in poverty. Who invests in poverty? You're not trying to grow poverty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're trying to invest in people's, you know, aspirations towards wealth. You're trying to invest in people's 
you know, will to make a better future for their children or their community. Those are things that are investable, but not not poverty. And would you say a little bit about your understanding of primary mind? Is this kind of some of the sure. understanding of the mind, the brain, the human condition that helps us understand why we do this and how to kind of actually work this, our way this out is of it. huge. You know, yeah. so simple fact of the matter is your nervous system, right? Your central nervous system is physically connected to your brainstem. Like you know, it's one set of wiring. These are not. It's not a separate system. <laughs> right. right. They they connect. Okay. And so the same way that your nervous system is always on, always firing, doesn't need your permission to feel and to see and to sense, like it, it is always doing these things. The same way that is happening, the other end of that system, your brain, is always on, always firing, always pattern mapping, doesn't need your permission to do so, right? right. And according to you know, the Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman, who we, we quote every time in our training. And he's been on the show too. He's amazing. He's dope. Yeah. I love that guy. Yeah. Um, so according to Kahneman, all human beings are prone to disregard information that doesn't fit the mental picture presented to it by its nervous system, right? And so the fact that our brains are always pattern mapping means that sometimes uh, you will look at a set of cars in a parking lot and you can sort of make out the, the impression of a, of a face on the grill of a car, like the headlights and the, and the grill of the car sort of look like a face, Right. Or you might look up into the clouds and you see pattern, you know, shapes of clouds that look like animals, right? Or look like something that... Yep. What I try to remind people is, uh, number one, you're not crazy. This is just your intuitive system doing its job. It is always pattern mapping. It says, it's always saying this looks like that. Right. That's what it does. It, it makes sense of the world for you. And it does it a thousand times per second. It is literally faster than conscious thought. The same way your nervous system, right? Okay. And so for that reason, whatever patterns it's primed with are the patterns that it looks for. And so when you only refer to a people a certain way, at risk, low income, marginalized, disadvantaged, when that's all, those, those are the only patterns you fed your brain. It is not your fault that when you encounter such a person, you are primed to think these things. That's the pattern that your brain has for recognizing who is in front of it. Yeah. And so those are not choices. Mm -hmm. Your brain does this instantaneously, literally faster than thought, the same way your nervous system works. I think something I appreciate also, though, that you point out explicitly is that another thing that reinforces it is that kind of in this, you know, since the Enlightenment at latest, kind of everything in our world tells us that we're actually rational. And a lot of things are actually organized around the idea that people are rational, even if we don't behave that way. Yep. And um, which I, I feel like that disjunction is really like, you know, coming into its own now. Um, mm. But. So that it's not just that there's this pattern making that's happening all the time, but we we have been taught that the conclusions we reach are rational, yeah, and and that's a disconnect um, yeah. with reality. And and one way you talked about asset framing is you're you're just you know by by focusing on like letting in the reality of aspirations and contributions, you're giving the primary mind a fuller set of information to walk around yeah. with. Yeah, and, and here's what I see going on. Uh, we have reached a point where our normal set of kind of cultural and governmental organizational systems, they clearly aren't adapting fast enough for the realities that we're encountering. Like, a as a society, as, in as individuals in the society, we are creepingly and more and more aware that those in charge are not capable of... Securing us, yeah. right? 
And of course, that's innately terrifying. Right? Yes. <laughs> um, but it, but it's, pre- it's pretty clear, you know, whether it's pandemic or economic collapse or whatever has happened in the last year, there's always something yeah. that's proving that we're not keeping up. And so the reality that we are all, no matter what your race or gender or background, like the reality that we're all dealing with is the ways that we've done things, you know, the culture, yeah. right? The yeah. ways that we've survived must adapt. The transferable set of beliefs and behaviors the ones we have are not surviving us, right? So we we must adapt. The simple fact of the matter is we are literally all in the same boat. We all have the same, uh, well, we all have the same set of aspirations. Like if you do a cross-section, we overlap in our, our values and aspirations like 90%. Like it's really in our highest values, our highest aspirations, like 90%. It's, 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 yeah. it's amazing how much we overlap. So if we're going to change our culture, we have to change our narrative. That's what it comes down to. We have to change the mental models that our brains are using to make sense of the world because the ones we have right now, they're failing us dramatically, you know? Uh, So that's where, like when I, when I think about our work, I love that this level of instability means we can actually make real progress on racial bias. We can make real progress on gender bias. We can make real progress on economic uh, instability and, and, and bias. Like, because the answers that we would have given 30 years ago, right? Nobody believes that anymore. Like you can't convince people of the old path. After a short break, more with Trabian Shorters. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism, intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with Trabian Shorters, a visionary social entrepreneur and the creator of Asset Framing. I know you're doing some work with the Solutions Journalism Project and perhaps yes. with, with other journalists. And, and journalists are often also very, very mission-driven people. No doubt. Um, but the forms that have us investigate dysfunction yes. and right and focus just with such intensity on what is catastrophic and corrupt and failing seem at this stage you know you can, you can look at history and you can see where where that led to things being made better but right now as you said there's all this reasonable despair and yes. fear and that is deepening it and and something that I can't remember if you wrote this somewhere or said it but as I was investigating you uh, you know you said we crave the moral and you're just really talking about at that nervous system brain level we crave mm-hmm. the moral direction stories provide mm-hmm. and I think that is such an interesting way to underscore what is at stake and kind of a calling to the parts of our society that help us piece that st- our story together. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I use ra- black uh, racial experience as kind of a divining rod for these conversations yeah. in part because 
that's where America, <laughs> we stumble all. Like, yeah, whatever we yeah. say we believe, you, you throw black uh, racial considerations and all of a sudden we go sideways, right? Yeah. And, and so to your point about the role that uh, media plays, you know, I've said this to David Bornstein, who is the co-founder of the Solutions Journalism Network, yeah. that if there is a uh, sort of narrative of, of racial hatred in the United States, then the news media is co-author of that narrative and co-conspirator in the cover-up. It's very easy to understand from a sociological standpoint that when the media reports on populations and cities and neighborhoods a very specific and particular way and never counterbalances that narrative with any positives, then the only patterns that our brain have to draw upon are fear triggers. I think this was from something that Solutions Journalism had... Anyway, it's like this is the original lead of a story, right, for yes. example. Yes. And it's just so familiar. <laughs> um, the Latinx community in the United States has always been, for the most part, on the bottom half, on income in the American society. The struggle to have access to health and mental care is part of the history. However, the COVID-19 pandemic has come to intensify the problems. And that's how it starts. Mm. It goes on. Yep. Yep. And that's a very familiar way into story. And then here's a revised lead that I think your team took a look at, and it starts this way. So since 2014, Latinx people have constituted the largest ethnic group in the nation's largest state. They now represent 39% of the California population. And then it goes on to talk about in recent years, Latinx residents have made advances in economic well-being, yep. Yep. measured by metrics like reduced poverty rates, growth in business ownership. And then, it event, you know, after a couple of sentences like that, you know, yep. people elected school boards, local offices. Yeah, they've made progress in everything have except for this. And then, despite yep. this impressive social and economic progress, Latinx residents yep. have lagged behind other Californians in achieving important goals like home ownership and income growth. And we can yeah. now add to that list the disproportionate harm visited on the community by the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Now, w- with that example, that was a California Health Care Foundation, I believe. Oh, yeah, um, right. But you uh, but you had you've worked with yeah, we, them. Yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, we, 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 trained, yeah. we trained and consulted and then they applied it. And they, they learned applied to do it. this. Yeah. They applied yeah. it, yeah. yeah. And what I want to underscore in those two different ways of framing mm-hmm. All the facts were accurate. Nobody made anything up. Yeah. Both framings are true, right? So we didn't have to invent anything. The first framing, however, about how Latin American folk has always failed in these ways, that framing totally left out all the assets, all the aspirations, all the kind. It, it, it characterized them literally without value. Mm-hmm. The asset frame version started with their value, yet still told you about all the ways that they're not you know, where they want to be. Right. Yeah. So that's why we, we, we suggest to journalists it is more accurate and honest reporting. When you're going to tell the story where all you do is point out what's broken, but you don't point out what's working uh, in, in a culture. Well, recognize you're inclining people to think that all that exists about that culture is brokenness. Yeah. They didn't come up with that conclusion on their own. They came up with that conclusion by your reporting. And so that's what I mean by journalism ends up being a co-author. Yeah. And. You point out that, of course, it, it's so, yes, the deficit framing is affecting the people who are hearing this, how they're, I mean, really what they're taking about how they're looking at the world and looking at certain people. You know, I was recently, I kept thinking about this when I, when I was getting into speaking of you, was two black men in New York City who are both brilliant and extremely successful. And they were talking about 
how upsetting it is for them to hear this language, which I think has been coined to, again, to be of service, like the school to prison pipeline, which is like mm-hmm. a, a rallying mm-hmm. cry for making mm-hmm. something better. But they said, you know, mm-hmm. what effect does that have on exactly. black young people in those right. schools that are defined right. as, yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah go on. And, well, just so again, let's look at how deficit framing has unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. So I agree with the idea that saying school to prison pipeline suggests that some populations are born on their way to prison. Yeah. Now, just think about that for a second, because that's, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one is born on their way to prison. That's a terrible way of thinking about a life. All right. So number one, I understand the objection to school to prison pipeline. But let's drop back 30 years, right? In the 80s, I was alive then, I remember when there was this dramatic uptick in violence in cities and neighborhoods, and John DeJulio had put out his studies saying that there was a super predator emerging in our urban cities, young people who are born godless and moralless and violent, like, and they happen to be black and brown, right? And so in the 80s, there was this fear, again, generated. And the media liked to tell those stories. So now there's this, this, this idea that a monster is coming from the ghettos and from the inner cities or, you know, whatever, right? So there's this feeling that there's a monster being baked. And in response to that fear, both liberals and conservatives pass more restrictive policies, including the idea that any child who brings a weapon to school will be expelled. Zero tolerance, they called it. Well, zero tolerance for weapons or, you know, uh, in these schools over time, morphed into zero tolerance for any behavior that we don't like. And these policies were disproportionately reinforced on black and brown kids, which led to them having extended periods of time out of school, which leads to truancy, which created this thing that some uh, marketing group started calling the school to prison pipeline. Trayvon Martin was, of course, uh, expelled under one of these zero tolerance policies, not for weapons, but for something minor that he had violated in school at the time that he was killed. So when you deficit frame, <laughs> your solutions end mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. creating problems that you have to fix later. Like it, we, we, we built the thing right. that we're trying to solve now. If we had a different orientation towards our students, right? If we define them by their aspirations to graduate, their aspirations to contribute to society, to fulfill their own dreams. Like if, if, if we recognize that inner city children still aspire, yeah. right? If we recognize that poor kids still contribute, then we would look for ways to remove the systemic obstacles to their abilities to do so. And that goes well beyond whether or not they can bring a weapon to school, right? So let's talk about the Be Me community that you've mm-hmm. created. Mm-hmm. Just talk about that. Because that feels like that's where, it's one place where all of this comes together, right? That you're. Yeah. yeah. No, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about Be Me because. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's it's a culmination of the other things that I've studied, you know, yeah. or, or learned yeah. in my life. I mentioned before that the question that we all have to answer when we look at each other is, who do you think we are, right? And so here's the the function of Be Me Community. In my own email tagline, I call Be Me Community leaders who speak life, right? We have enough sources telling us what's broken. We have enough sources telling us what needs to be fixed. We have enough people giving us constant fear triggers, fear primers, right? We have exhausted people on what they should be afraid of and worried about and scared of. Like they just, the the CDC has, has, you know, reported that news consumption is a health hazard, right? Right, right. right. We're stressing ourselves out. Like it's crazy. 
Right now, we're in a society that is awash with fear triggers. So much so that we think it is the only way to motivate and engage people. And it is not. And what we've seen in Be Me Community and what we've seen with asset framing is when you learn this skill, when you learn how to asset frame, I'll, I'll bring it back to Be Me, but this is a yeah. broader okay. point. Okay. When you learn to asset frame, you literally engage more people, have higher impact, make people more willing to do systems change, and raise more money. Like we've shown that all these things happen when you learn this skill. Mm-hmm. So the thought behind Be Me Community is, why don't we gather the black leaders who show up in communities, are trusted in the places where they work, go unrecognized and unsung because you know the public narrative isn't interested in this generative, positive yeah. stuff, right? They only want to hear about the worst things. So we know that there is an entire population of builders who were in these neighborhoods and communities before protests ever happened. They'll be there during the protest. They'll be there after the protest. They are constantly feeding people's lives. They're constantly helping people to live. They're constantly helping people to own. They're constantly helping people to realize their voting rights. They're constantly helping people to excel. There's a whole infrastructure of builders, of doers, of people who love and care that gets totally ignored because they don't fit the cycle. So we're like, well, why don't we gather those people into a community, right? Mm -hmm. Why don't we acknowledge them? Why don't we resource them? Why don't we reinforce them? Why don't we let their love build, right? And then engage them with anybody else who wants to be part of a generative agenda, right? If, If half of our social impact work is about fixing broken systems, then the other half of our social impact work has to be about building high-functioning societies, right? Yeah. Better cultures. Right. right. And so that's what Be Me Community is about. Be Me is, is Black folks building upon Black love to make a better society for everyone. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with social visionary, the creator of Asset Framing, Trabian Shorters. So I want to, we're going to have to circle to a close in a minute. But before we do, I would love to just go through, again, for just that person out there who does whatever they do and whatever kind of institution they're in. Uh, whatever kind of work they're in or community, how to practice this skill. Yes. Um, so, you know, I made a lot of notes. Um, this stuff is very pragmatic, and, and some yes. of it is quite simple, if, yes. if not necessarily instinctive. Um, yes. So how would you, you know, what, what, what would you give for some of those bullet points? What do you Sure. Yeah, yeah. First of all, recognize that asset framing is not about what you say about people. So if you can accept that, It's not at all about word choice. Asset framing is about what do you think about the people, right? So rule number one, it's about what do you think about them? Are you introducing them by their aspiration or their contribution? Or are you introducing them by something else? Is your first thought about them one that affirms the spirit of the person in front of you? And when you develop that so also I was going to say, so that first move is actually internal work inside yourself. It's right? all internal work. That's internal. <laughs> it's, all, it's all internal. You get, you get yourself centered and you, you will yes. talk to yourself. Look, I, you know, honestly, Krista, I, I'm, I'm being 100% and I, I, I invite anyone listening to take the 100-day challenge and see if I'm right or wrong on this. 
Honestly, when you start practicing asset framing, your life gets better. You feel better. You see more life. You see more light in your day to day. You're more forgiving of people who have faults and flaws in your own family. Uh, and then the litmus for how you think of people is, are you introducing people by their aspiration or contribution? And remember, framing, how you introduce a topic frames the topic. How you introduce a subject frames the subject. It's just about how do you introduce it. So you don't have to ignore anybody's problems or faults or any of that. But you never start with that. Okay. You always start with their aspirations. You always start with their contributions. Uh, so that's two. Uh, three is actually think about what is obstructing their aspirations and contributions. And the reason why I throw in bullet three is because I don't want anyone running around saying, oh, asset framing is just focusing on the positives. Right, right. I'm like, no, no. By definition, you must think about challenges. If you're not including the challenges, you're not asset framing. And the reason why it's so important to include the challenges is because if you just, you know, try to focus on the positives, then you're going to ignore or diminish or negate the legitimate systemic obstacles that people have, right? So we're not trying to say everybody aspires to be free and happy. And so therefore there's no work to be done, right? Right. Anyway. Well, and there was some place where I saw you do this with this phrase at risk, at risk sure. kids. And you said, yeah. okay, what are we talking about? You're also you're talking about students, right? Yeah. You just, yeah. So you just talk about them as students. Um, do you, yeah. You know what it, it, yeah. Yeah. In, in most cases, at-risk youth go to school. And mm -hmm. by, not all, but most, mm -hmm. right? And so if you talk about, you know, students and what their aspirations are, what, you know, they might, even if they just aspire to graduate, right? Students who want to graduate face these obstacles. Mm -hmm. Then people are much more inclined to say, well, wait a minute. Why should any kid have to deal with systemically underfunded schools, systemically over over policed communities. Why why should if this kid just wants to graduate, grow up and contribute to society, why do they have to do it with this level of barrier? Yeah. Right? And when you asset frame, instead of using this sort of deficit framing jargon, when when you when you define the student by their aspiration to grow up, you know, and graduate, then the unjustness of the obstacles becomes easier to appreciate. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you talk about an at-risk youth, well, Here's the funny thing about an at-risk youth, and the Frameworks Institute has shown this, right? When you, when you use terms like that over and over and over again, people don't think about being at risk as a circumstance. They think about it as an identity. Right. And they believe that at-risk youth are born on their way to prison. Right. 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 They're the ones attending the school-to-prison pipeline. Right. And from, again, from an intuitive level, the causation just attaches to the kid. Yeah. They're at risk because of some choice they made or their parents made, right? It's not a systemic problem. It's... It's a culture of poverty. That's on them, not on... Yeah. Right? And so all that language makes it easy to scapegoat. It makes it easy to dismiss people who are experiencing a disparity mm -hmm. as if they are the cause of their disparity, mm -hmm. which is ridiculous. I think this right? is something from the, the materials that Solutions Journalism used or that you help them define. Like poverty, for example, is a state, not a trait. But you're, yes. you're pointing out how easily our minds make that shift. You know, I saw this um, event you did for Aspen Institute where you where you asked people to turn to their neighbor um, yeah. and just think about, just like look at their neighbor, possibly a stranger, possibly mm -hmm. someone they know, and just think about as much as they could that is wrong with this person. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, and, you know, that's an exercise that just reveals how 
absurd this is, this whole way yes. we've been living. <laughs> yes. By the way, uh, may, I, may I, Krista, share yeah. that part of the reason why we, I, I do that exercise is twofold. One, um, your intuitive system, right, is the fast system that Kahneman talks about. Yeah. But it's also, like I said, your nervous system is wired to your brain. So when you get a gut feeling, mm-hmm. it's because it is it is part of the neurology that, you know, that, that, that wires, that connects your brain to your, the rest of your body, right? And so part of the reason why I, I give that example is to point out to people that on a gut level, you know it's wrong to do that. Yeah. It feels bad when you have to do that and someone can see you doing it. Yeah. Right? When you're looking right at them yeah. and you have to think, you know, try to notice everything that's wrong with them, inside you go, Ugh, I don't like it, mm. right? Mm. And so I, 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 I like to do that exercise to illustrate to people, in your spirit, you know that's not the way to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I do get a sense that the hacker in you has a lot of confidence that that this is a shift. I mean, you know, I've heard you say it, like that we can flip this script in a short period of time and that, that new generations actually do have the capacity right now to change this narrative at scale. Yeah, well, let me, let me maybe contextualize okay. that a little bit. Yeah. You know, the baby boom generation, the civil rights generation, like those folks have been adults for 50 years. Everything about our sense of policy and priorities, like everything about our culture has flowed through one generation yeah. for half a century. Yeah. And they're aging out of institutional power. Yeah. So as we experience that instability, the other thing that's going on simultaneously is the most diverse generation that we've ever had is becoming the mainstream. Yeah. And that is why they're going to fundamentally challenge whatever existing narratives you know, around what a gender is, yeah. right? What women's roles are, yeah. who is black or white or whatever. You know, even the way we think about race, like how, how fluid <laughs> right, those definitions, right. they're going to challenge all that yeah. because it doesn't fit their experience. Yeah. So this is it. Yeah. <laughs> this is the last yeah. time that one racial group can carry the majority of this democracy. And in that type of democracy, you know, when, when you have racial pluralism, right, where there is no majority, then the skills to be able to see each other's value becomes a functional skill. It's not a nice one to have. It's the only way to govern. Right. Um, the question of what it means to be human is vast. And it's kind of the operating question of, of my work, and I feel like the work you're doing is just so richly informing a 21st century, you know, re-examination and opening up of how we live that question. And if I ask you, like, what you keep learning through this life you have, this work you do about what it means to be human, like, how would you start talking about that just today? Yeah, well, I'm going to go back to the old guy again. Uh, my grandfather... He was a wise dude and like very simple, like all, all of his stuff was very practical. But then when you stop and think about it, it's deep, you know? Yeah. And um, I always loved that whenever my grandpa would say, well, you know, in the real world, blah, 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 like whatever came <laughs> after that. Right? right. And but here's the thing. Anytime he said the real world, he was talking about spirit life. Mm-hmm. Your spirit life is the real world mm-hmm. as far as he was concerned. Mm-hmm. And everything else we do is an expression of what's going on in our spirit life. Right. And so I, I love that his orientation and my grandmother's orientation to people was the spirits that live through us, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 
you will live and die, but the spirit will endure, mm-hmm. right? And so the question then becomes, what is the spirit that you want to feed? Mm. That's it. Who, who do you think you are? Like what, whatever you feed will grow, you know? And so if you want to believe in justice, be just. I mean, I'm sure there must be some wise people who've said this somewhere, but you get the idea. Like, yeah. I do not subscribe. And I, 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 for any of, you know, your listeners who may be black, I have never once subscribed to this notion. It is a white man's world. I've heard people say those things in a white man's world. I'm yeah. like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> and my grandmother, I, I do tell the story in the fellowship all the time, but I'll, I'll there's a passage in the Bible that gets quoted a, a lot that says, you know, to humble thyself before the Lord. Right. But Irma Lee, who's from Louisiana somewhere, you know, a church lady, <laughs> my grandmother. Yeah. Irma Lee translated that to me long ago, and I never forgot her way of saying it. She said, yeah, it says, humble thyself before the Lord, the creator of everything. You, you, you must be humble in God's presence. But to God's creation, you're not supposed to hide mm. Your, your blessing and your faith and your love under a rock. No, 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 no. Mm. Humble thyself before the Lord, but for everybody else, shine, mm. right? So they can see a path. Well, I think you embody that. I, I feel like there's such audacity and pragmatism to um, something I saw you describe this work, which, you know, develop a more inspiring and accurate and fundamentally different narrative about humanity and engage people accordingly. Amen. I think your grandparents would be proud. Thank you. Thanks, Krista. Trabian Shorters consults widely and is the founder and CEO of the Be Me community. Learn more at bmecommunity.org. He's also co-editor of the book, Reach. 40 Black Men Speak on Living, Leading, and Succeeding. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.